And so this afternoon we're studying Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 14. Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 14. And before we study that, I'll pray. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word, the Holy Scriptures, and we pray, Father, that we would receive them for that which they truly are, the very words of God. Father, this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 3, starting at verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptised by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptised and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorised to do. Soldiers also asked him, And what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Amen, and may God bless his word to us. So if we um, just look briefly back through the Gospel of Luke, coming up to where we're at, Luke, first of all, starts off telling us about the birth of John the Baptist. Then in Luke chapter 1, he moves on to the birth of Jesus foretold. Then he moves on to the birth of John the Baptist. Then he moves on to the birth of Jesus. Then Jesus becomes the centre point of the narrative, all about his childhood, about being taken to the temple, about the words that were spoken over him at the temple, about the proclamation of the coming of the Saviour, thinking particularly of the words of Simeon in the temple and how Simeon basically prophesied that this is it, this is salvation, I've seen God's salvation, this is a light of revelation for all the world. Then Luke also speaks about Jesus in the temple, Jesus remaining behind in the temple when the family had gone to the Passover festival. Chapter 3, we're back to John. John the Baptist. There's a build-up going on. First one thing, then another thing, then back to the first thing, then back to the second thing, then back to the first thing, then back to the second thing. We're back to the first thing, John the Baptist. There's a build-up going on. We know that the Saviour has been born, but we know that very few people have actually recognised him to be the Saviour. Indeed, even the household into which he was born, verse 48, I'm, I'm looking at, I'm sorry, Verse 
verse 50, I'm sorry, of Luke chapter 2. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Even Mary and Joseph did not understand the words that Jesus had spoken to them. It's not that they disbelieved. It's just that they um, had not at that point received the necessary revelation to truly understand what was going on. Very few people truly understood that this Jesus of Nazareth is actually the saviour. But that's not going to last for very long. In terms of prophesying, in terms of God sending his prophets to his people, we're looking at roughly 400 years since Malachi spoke to the people of God. 400 years of prophetic silence. Not that God has had no dealings with the Jews. If you read carefully the book of Daniel and that which was prophesied in Daniel concerning coming kings, etc., and the desolation of abomination and all of those things, and then you look carefully at Jewish history from that time forward, everything that Daniel predicted has come to some form of fulfilment in the intertestamental, in, in, intertestamental period. <laughs> everything has come to some form of fulfilment. God has had dealings with his people. God has basically had his people where he wanted them, when he wanted them there. But now it's time to reveal the Saviour. And before the Saviour comes, comes the one who goes before the Saviour, the one who goes before God. It was John's father, Zechariah, who said that John himself would go before the Lord. Verse 76 of Luke chapter 1. And you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. In um, Amos chapter 3 at verse 7, we read, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secrets to his servants, the prophets. John is the prophet, the one who goes before, the one who was sent to make the proclamation. And the people recognised him as a prophet. There were people who were desperate for God to have some kind of open public dealings with Israel once more. Open public dealings with his people. Notice in chapter 3 at the very beginning, Luke does everything he can to set this in a time and a place. The reign of Tiberius Caesar Pontius Pilate at that time being governor, Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. You know, he's, he's, not, he's not telling us that once upon a time, somewhere off in the deep, dark mists of time, in a certain place, at a certain time, that can be measured, that you can, you can go back into the records, you can work out exactly the time that I'm talking about. Now, we from 2,000 years away, obviously it's, it's very hard for us to set this at a particular year. It's, it's basically figured by the scholars that this is 18 years since, 18 years since Jesus remained behind at the temple which would make Jesus at this point of time 30 years old. And there's, you know, the scholars can argue about that. Some will, some will say it was 
before that and some say it was a little bit after that and it depends on how you count the reign of Tiberius Caesar and things like that, etc., etc. But 18 years. But even in that setting of time, looking at verse 2, there's a little um, hint there that all was not well in Israel. Verse 2 reads, During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Now, you, you just need to think about the priesthood and the nature of the priesthood and the high priesthood. Should there ever have been a time when two names were given during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas? And the answer is no, there should never have been a time when two high priesthoods were given. The high priesthood was a hereditary role. It was given to the oldest son of the oldest son, of the oldest son, all the way back to Aaron. And here two names are dropped, the father-in-law and the son-in-law. And that's telling us there's trouble in Israel, that things aren't right with the priesthood. The priesthood is answering to Rome. The reason that two names are given is that the high priest had been deposed by the Romans and his son-in-law had been put in his place. And the Jews, well, they're always going to call Annas high priest. Even though Caiaphas is the functioning high priest. And so there are two high priests. And so later on in the Gospels, when we come to the trial of Jesus, Jesus has two trials before two high priests. All is not well. The, the, the nation of Israel has reached a compromise with Rome and in reaching that compromise with Rome, Rome is running the public visible church. And that's not a good thing. And if, if you're like me and, and you sort of instantly start to contextualise things and start to think of how would that apply in the present day, well, what have we seen in the last couple of years with COVID regs, COVID regulations and enforcement, etc.? The government has said we have the right to regulate church. We have the right to say when you can meet and when you can't meet and under what conditions you can conduct your meetings. Now, I'm not saying that it would have been right for the church to conduct violent protests in the street and go crazy. But, and... You know, it's, it, it's kind of a fine line to tread. But you've got to understand, if they have the power to tell us when we can and we can't meet, well, it's not going to be long before they say, and we have the power to tell you what you can and you can't say. And in some parts of Australia, they've already taken that power. In Victoria, they've taken that power to themselves. They have what they call their anti-conversion therapy laws. Now, this is to deal with the subject of all forms of sexual perversion, homosexuality, lesbianism, transgenderism, you name it. And it is illegal for anyone, including pastors, ministers, church leaders, to say in the hearing of one of those sexually perverted sinners that what they are doing is a sexual perversion and a sin and something that God in Scripture calls abomination. It's not that big a step, is it, to go from you can and can't meet at this time in this place under these conditions to then saying, and when you meet, whatever you do, 
Don't say A, B or C. If you just pray with one of these people in Victoria, if they come to you seeking help and say, I'm suffering from a certain lust, I have certain unclean desires and I want them gone. If you pray with that person that God would deliver them from their sin, you have technically broken the law. And if at some point they change their mind and go and complain that you prayed in that way, you are liable to be charged. The fines are huge and there are jail sentences also. When the people of God submit to the government of the world in such a way that the government of the world gets to dictate the terms of our relationship with God, we are, if we're not in apostasy, we're a split millimetre from apostasy. It's just a fact. And, you know, we as God's people, we've got to be really sensitive to this. Now, we, we've just come off a, off a, off a, a break from public meetings. We, we had 50% of the church down with COVID. We made the decision. It, it just wasn't, it wasn't worth the risk of meeting. It wasn't worth, well, first of all, we could barely draw a congregation together because we're a small congregation. But it, it just wasn't worth um, setting ourselves up to be the fall guys by meeting under those circumstances. The truth is, with that particular with that particular disease, you know, look, the latest variant Omicron, you've you've all had it. Every person in the room has had it, and we're all talking about fairly bad cold. Some had more of a flu type symptom. Some had more of a head cold type symptom. It knocked us around. We got a bit tired. We got a high temperature, and we're starting to feel okay now. Um, but. You know, if, if it were of the more serious variety, um, well, that could kill some people. It's a possibility and we know it. We chose not to have public meetings for the last two weeks for that reason. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy to defy government overreach, but I don't see why I should carry a sign down the middle of the streets saying, come and get me. If they, if they want to find me defying their overreach here in this congregation, well, they're going to have to come and find it. I'm, I'm not advertising it. I'm not going to boast about it. We're here doing what we do and obeying the Lord to the best of our ability. But when the people of God are at the point where instead of letting Scripture dictate how we are to deal one with another, how we are to deal with the subject of worship, where we, how we are to deal with how we actually live as Christians. We let the government dictate those terms to us. If we're not already in apostasy, we're a split millimetre from it. And that's the situation that Israel was in at this time. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Isn't it amazing? It didn't come to him in the temple. It didn't come to him in the forecourt of the temple. It didn't come to him in a synagogue. You know, John John didn't turn up where the crowds were. John turned up where God told him to turn up, and that was somewhere in the wilderness, down around the region of the Jordan, all around the Jordan. Now, some parts of the Jordan Valley are fine and fertile, and some parts look like an absolute bomb has gone off in them because, well, that's where God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. The closer you get to the Dead Sea, 
the more the the, the deeper you get into a, a, a bare and barren desert. And that's where John started to preach, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He wasn't actually preaching, as it were, what we would call the gospel. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah will die on the cross. I'm not saying he was preaching against it, but what he was preaching to the people was look at the condition that you are in at this moment. You say that you're Jews, but I see Nothing in common with your religion and the faith of Abraham or the faith of Abraham. You say that you're Jews, yet your, your keeping of the law is a joke. It's, it's basically non-existence. You claim to be living the life that God has given you to live, yet the truth is you're living a life of sin. And the idea of a baptism of repentance, the, the idea of uh, being washed, I think, He's picking that up. John the Baptist himself might be well picking that up in the book of Isaiah at chapter 1. So if you want to open in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 1. Let's start reading at verse 10. Now Isaiah is speaking to the people of Israel. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? <coughs> Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Verse 16. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. We'll leave it off there. If you're wondering why do I think that He's um, possibly reaching back into the book of Isaiah. It's because from verse 4 to verse 6, Luke records for us all the words that um, John preaches from the book of Isaiah. John the Baptist obviously has, um, if you want to put it this way, the book of Isaiah embedded within his mind and within his heart. And he quotes from various different sections of the book of Isaiah. So John has appeared and his message is basically almost what we just read in Isaiah chapter 1. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. And he went, verse 3, and he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 4, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. That's from Isaiah chapter 40. He then goes, Luke then records for us, every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. That's from, sorry, I've lost my marker. Anyway. And every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked places shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. 
Isaiah 57, 14, and Isaiah 49, 11. There we go. Isaiah 57, 14, and Isaiah 49, 11. John the Baptist is taking these words from the prophet Isaiah and he's applying them to the right now in this place. Where? In Israel. Where in Israel? Judea. Where in Judea? In the wilderness. Where did he go? Did he go to the temple? No. He went out into the wilderness and there he preached. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Probably a reference to Isaiah chapter 52, verse 10. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. John is proclaiming the fulfillment of all of these things that are found in the book of Isaiah. Now, amazingly or not, depends how you look at it, Thousands upon thousands of people came out to hear his preaching. Thousands. The rumour went round. There's a prophet. God has sent a prophet. There's a prophet preaching in the wilderness. And what's more, he dresses like Elijah. We know that from other parts of scripture. (laughs) I love what he has to say to them. Verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptised by him, you brood of vipers, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You brood of vipers, you pit of snakes, you offspring of serpents. Have you ever heard of the 11th commandment? It's a joke. It's it's a joke. But it's called the 11th commandment. And it goes like this. You shall not say anything that is not nice or may possibly offend someone. That's called the 11th commandment. It's, it's a joke. John never heard that 11th commandment. No one ever got to him and told him, when you get a crowd of people in front of you, say what they want to hear. You brood of vipers. <laughs> Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I've got thousands of followers, he says, and you're not the followers I want. I don't care. You're coming out to hear what I've got to say and I've got nothing good to say to you. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Why would that be so important? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Because he's speaking to a people who are in their sins, whose religion has become lightweight. It's become a show. As Isaiah said, God said, I'm sick of your convocations. I I hate iniquity and worship being mixed together. And that's what you're doing every other day of the week. And I hate it. I'm sick of it. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Basically, John is saying to these people, you've got the law. You've got the commandments of God. You've got that which has been revealed to you. And instead of it humbling you because you realize that you're not keeping the law, you're proud. We've got the law. God spoke to us. Aren't we special? That was never the reason it was given. It's the same. The New Testament was never given to us that we might boast that God has spoken to us. It was given to us that we would worship God through Jesus Christ our Lord, seeking the forgiveness of sins. In that way, at least, the Old Testament has done nothing, is is doing nothing different. 
Any true deep reading of the law should be convicting people of sins, not allowing pride. Notice what he says. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now, John is attacking basically Jewish mythology at this time. What do I mean by mythology? Well, the scripture says that God is the God of the offspring of Abraham. God's promises are that he would be the God of the children of Abraham and that they would be his people. But that was not a promise that such people who could trace their ancestry to Abraham could thereby do whatsoever they please. There was this sort of mythology that somehow or other Abraham was there saving them, that When they sinned, God would hear Abraham pleading on their behalf. It sort of claimed Abraham as a type of father. And John is saying, don't don't make that claim. You're not like Abraham. You know, what what did Jesus say to them in John chapter 8, verse 39? They answered him, that's the Jews, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. In that same passage, Jesus calls them children of the devil, children of a serpent. The devil is your father. John has called them here a nest of vipers, a brood of vipers. Do not say Abraham is our father, for I tell you, God is able to raise up from these is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Don't don't come to me telling me that you're Abraham's children and therefore I ought to be recognising you and your holy heritage. You don't have one. There's no fruit. You don't live like believers. You're living like sinners and you're proud and you're boastful. Verse 9, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. False religion is hated by God. And it doesn't matter what ancestry a person can claim. False religion is hated by God. I think here of in the book of Revelation, just turn to Revelation. I think here in the book of Revelation of the words of Jesus to the church of Laodicea. It's in Revelation chapter 3 at verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you are either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realising that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one, who, to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The amazing thing that's being said here is it's being spoken to a church, to a congregation. This is 
a letter to a particular church, Laodicea, in a particular time and place. Can it be applied to other churches? Well, yes, of course. God's word applies to God's people throughout all the ages. But here they are. They think they're having church services. They think that they're the people of God. They think that they're doing all that God requires of them. And Jesus says, I'm outside. You're in there carrying on as though you're the religious people, as though God's on your side, God's with you and everything's right. And here I am. I'm outside. I stand at the door and knock. I'm speaking to you as a congregation. I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone, if any individual within the congregation hears my voice and opens, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So what's the call? You've got false religion. You've got a congregation, a group of people practicing false religion and absolute hypocrisy. Yet to each and every one of you, one of those people there's a call you can repent you can back away from this you can cease to behave in this way you can you can call on me and i will answer you but with regards to this false and hypocritical worship i'm not there i'm outside the door well that's what that's it's a similar thing that john is saying to the jews that have come out to be baptized by him you say you've got Abraham as, Abraham as your father, yet you don't live like Abraham. You don't obey the law of God. Your religion is a joke. You don't take the word seriously. You need to repent. What would that look like? What would it look like when people got serious about the word of God, got serious about the law of God, got serious about obeying God? And that's what the crowds ask. Verse 10, and the crowds ask him, what then shall we do? What then shall we do? Now, he's not at this point in time preaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. At this moment in time, he's preaching about obedience to the word that they had already heard. He's preaching about obedience to the law of God. Verse 11, And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is also to do likewise. Simple. Care for the poor. If a person is not clothed, clothe them. Help people out. Verse 12, tax collectors also came to be baptised and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorised to do. Now, there's a lot to think about there. First of all, these people are tax collectors. They're most probably Jews and they're working for the Romans, collecting Roman tax. You need to understand how that works. If you are a tax collector, you are given a certain region and a certain place to work within that region. And let's just say, for the sake of discussion, that the person who gives you that region says, you shall return to me $5,000 in precious metals. If you can collect 7500 in precious metals, you get the profit. As long as the person who gave you that region, who gave you that area in which you are to collect tax, gets what he demands of you, you can keep everything over the top. It's a business. It's a franchise. So what does he say to the tax collectors? He doesn't say, stop collecting tax for government. You know, people don't get the impression that I'm anti-government. I'm not anti-government. We must have government. We must have policing. We must have civil law. We must have these things. We must have proper contracts and people must keep their contracts. All of those things, we must have them. You know, it, 
I'm not utopian by any shape or form. It's not as though we can live without them. We're, we're a society of sinners. Evil must be restrained and good must be rewarded. But I am totally against governmental overreach where they claim to be lords of our conscience and where they claim that they have the right to dictate the way that the people of God serve God. You see, all this democracy that we have, all the freedoms that we've known in our lives here in Australia, we have because this was once a Christian nation. It was such a Christian nation that when our federal constitution was drawn up, it was basically assumed that no one would ever challenge what was at that time the Australian identity, which was basically Christian. Therefore, there's no need to say anything about it. A very, you know, a very naive sort of approach to writing a constitution so we never got a Bill of Rights and we never not never got guaranteed, explicitly guaranteed freedom of religion and all those things. It's sort of, you know, uh, when these things get argued out in the High Court, they're, they're trying to argue, look, it's clearly implied. Those who drew up the Constitution clearly expected that Australia would continue to be the nation that it always was, etc., etc. That we are subjects of the Crown, that, that you know, that whoever is uh, king or queen at that moment is head of an established church, those who drew it up would have assumed that Australia would have remained what it was. So they never drew in religious protections. They never drew in protection for the church. That, you know, and so now we've got government that feels quite free to overreach its allotted power and quite free to um, delve into things that it ought not touch, much to their pain. It's, it's going to fall back down on their heads one way or another, this life or the next. It's going to crush them one way or the other. Anyway, John's reply to them is not stop working for the government. John's reply to them is do no more or collect no more than you are authorised to do so. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, a very similar thing. Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. The soldiers here are obviously filling something of the role of a police force. And he's saying to them, enforce the rules, no more. Don't be intimidators, don't be bullies, don't carry on as though um, you, you uh, have no one to answer to. You answer to God. And that's another thing that needs to be said to our police these days. In the last two years, with all of these COVID regulations, we've all seen it. They've gone absolutely feral. We've seen old ladies maced and bashed up by the police because they're carrying a sign that was anti-vax. It's just, you know, 25 years ago, you would have said, hey, mate, this is Australia, stop. And there would have been some kind of court challenge to all of this behaviour. But the people who are enslaved to their sins end up enslaved to their government. And that's where we're at. Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. The police, policing is not a bad thing, but the police should only enforce the law that they're authorised to enforce. And that's it. So what does it look like when people are repentant? What does it look like when people have the weight of the word of God upon them and treat it seriously? They take it seriously. They don't duck, dodge and weave. They don't try to find excuses. It looks like people doing what they should do.
It looks like people doing what they ought to do. It may not look spectacular, but it looks like people building a society and or a nation. You can build a society on do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You can build a society on God's law and the restraint of evil through the enforcement of law that draws its authority from God's law. But you can't build a society on the attitudes that we see in the world around us today. Because if you ask me to describe the average Australian's attitude at this moment, I would say the average Australian's attitude at this moment is bad stuff happens and as long as it doesn't happen to me, I don't care. And you can't build a nation on that. And that's the nation that we're living in at this moment. Bad stuff happens and as long as it doesn't happen to me, I don't care. It looks like people caring one for another. I, I was thinking about it, obviously, this morning as I was preparing to come here and teach. And, you know, I, I pulled into a, um, a truck stop one day, went in and got a meal, and I was sitting there in a meal, and I could, from, from where I was sitting, I could see the fuel pumps and, and, the, and the apron that the, that the trucks come in and got their bulk diesel from. And a truck pulled up, and a guy struggled to climb down out of it. He was a one-legged man. He'd had one leg amputated. Obviously, it was it was his left leg. He was driving an he was driving an automatic truck. He was driving an interstate an interstate B double. He was working, and I watched with a bit of interest as he sort of hobbled around and he got the fuel running and all of that. And then another truck driver walked over, grabbed the water bucket and the squeegee, and climbed up the side of this one-legged man's trucks truck and washed his windows for him. Something that he could not do for himself another man voluntarily did for him. Now, I know nothing about the men. I don't know them. I don't know if they were friends, if they knew each other. I haven't got the faintest that didn't appear to be that they knew each other. What it appeared to me was that there was one bloke who actually cared enough about his fellow man to actually do something for that man that he could not do for himself. Because one thing was obvious. With the door closed, he could not climb up the side of that truck to wash his windows. There was no way he could do it. You have to open the door to, he would have had to open the door to climb into the truck. When he opened the door, the staircase comes from its recess. But with the door open, you can't clean the windows. The door has to be closed so you can climb up the outside to clean the windows. That's what it looks like. People simply doing the right thing for people. People doing for people what they can't do for themselves. That's what a godly law-abiding nation looks like. You know, we, we can talk all the high theology in the world and, as you know, I, I try to take us as deeply into the word of God as I am able. And I want us to understand all of the theology of the word of God. I really want us to. It's very important. That's the foundation that we build our thinking on. And if you don't have the foundation, sooner or later the works dry up. You know, the obedience dries up. If you don't understand God's word and why God commands certain things and what that, what that obedience looks like, if you haven't got the theology and the understanding of the word in the first place, the works will soon dry up because you'll be doing them in your own energy and you'll get tired of doing them. What it looks like when people take the word of God seriously is people living one with another, doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. Clothing the poor, feeding the hungry, doing your job with diligence and not taking advantage of other people. 
and even working for and supporting government, but not doing evil in the name of government. Do that, and you've got a nation that can be built. So John appears in the wilderness calling the people of Israel to faithfulness to that which had been revealed to them. He's basically saying, you know what, there's a saviour coming, and we look more at that next week, and you're not ready to receive the saviour because you haven't allowed yourself to feel the weight of revelation that God has already given you, and your hearts are not humble. Your hearts are not humble. Your hearts are not open to your need for salvation. This saviour is going to come. You're going to reject him. But your rejecting him is actually him rejecting you. Judgment. And that's the warning of John the Baptist. So my friends, always let the weight of God weigh upon you. Don't take it lightly. Take it seriously. If you can do a little thing for another person that is doing unto others as you would have them do unto you, do it. All right. They are image bearers of the living God, be they sinners or not. Broken images, possibly. Nevertheless, love your neighbour as you love yourself. Whether you were uh, an old covenant believer or a new covenant believer as we are, this was always the requirement of the law. And that's what John is calling the people to. Let's close in prayer. Now, Father in heaven, I do thank you for your word, the Holy Scriptures, and I thank you, Father, that it is so clear that we who take your word seriously must live as your people in this world, faithful, obedient, loving, helpful, doing unto others as we would do, have them do unto ourselves and obeying your law in the doing of it. Father in heaven, please help us to be diligent, to be salt in the town around about us, to be light in our nation. Father, I pray not only for our church, but for all the churches here in Australia, that we indeed would be faithful to your word, and obedient to your commandments. And I pray this in Jesus. Amen.